Welcome to the podcast of CGEM, the Center for Genetically Encoded Materials. CGEM is a National Science Foundation Center for Chemical Innovation dedicated to transforming the fabric of society with genetically encoded chemical polymers. I'm Jeffrey Townsend, a Lehu Professor of Biostatistics and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale University and the Director of Collaborative Communication and Information Transfer at CGEM. In our last podcast, we heard from Riju Das, Associate Professor of Biochemistry at Stanford University and a CGEM investigator. Professor Das explained his remarkable contributions to the understanding of the chemistry of RNA, an understanding that will be critical to efforts to redesign the catalytic RNA at the heart of ribosomes, enabling new polymer chemistry. Today, I'm excited to welcome to the podcast Omar Ad. Omer is currently an Agilent Technologies Fellow and a seed investigator at the Center for Genetically Encoded Materials. Omer received his undergraduate degree in chemistry from the University of Maryland at College Park, where he was a Howard Hughes Medical Institute undergraduate research fellow and was mentored by Professor Stephen Rokita, studying the kinetics of reversible DNA alkylation using small molecules. He then went on to attain his PhD in chemistry from the University of California at Berkeley under the mentorship of Professor Michelle Chang. At Berkeley, Omer studied the mechanism of polyketide synthases, nature's antibiotic production machines, in order to design methodology for producing fluorinated variants of macrolide antibiotics. Omer then moved to Yale University and, as an Agilent Technologies postdoctoral fellow, worked in the lab of Alana Shepartz toward the generation of genetically encoded sequence-defined polymers. Omer, welcome to the CGEM podcast. Hi, great to be here. Omer, I'm really excited to talk with you today because I just read your recent research paper published in the American Chemical Society Central Science Journal. And I want to start by reading the first sentence of that paper. It reads, as far as we know, ribosomes have evolved for billions of years to perform a single reaction, formation of an amide bond between two alpha amino acid substrates brought into proximity by tRNAs within the ribosome active site, the peptidyl transferase center. I love this sentence because it's like the perfect use of a dramatic principle of Chekhov's gun. Chekhov has been quoted for saying of playwriting, if in the first act you've hung a gun on the wall, then in the following one, it should be fired. Otherwise, don't put it there. So you've quite set it up in this paper. With the very first sentence, I know exactly where you're going. You're going to the point of how we can actually uh, catalyze some new reactions that are are um, unanticipated in the function of the ribosome. And it's clear in that first sentence. Could you just at the very highest level, because we'll get to the details later, can you summarize what you accomplish in this paper? Yeah, sure. Uh, happy to. You know, the goal of this this paper was to see if you know this machine that that this that the body that this that cells uh, in life use to generate these polymers essential for life these proteins they they do this one reaction incredibly well with incredible detail incredible length incredible what we call processivity and um, we were just really interested to see if this this machine can do similar reactions with with similar components and basically build different polymers so if, if you think about it from a really simple perspective. This this uh, machine makes basically like be- puts beads on the string, and it has a, a set sort of set of beads. And what we were interested to see is, well, can we put a completely different set in at least initially, uh, and see what happens? That's really that's really it's really sort of an amazing idea because it, it's a machine that's been, as you wrote in that sentence, evolving for billions of years to do one thing, and then to to actually find ways to engineer it so it'll do other things is sort of. 
astonishing. So there's a lot of chemistry in the paper um, and uh, there are a lot of chemical terms that I'd like our listeners to be comfortable with. So I want to ask you to sort of talk a little bit about uh, some of the chemical terms. And the way I want to do it is just ask you to remember in your educational history, like where did you first encounter these? And if you could tell me, sort of describe them a little bit and then how they relate to this paper. And also if you have any anecdotes about learning about them the first time, that'd be great. So the first thing I want to talk about is ribosomes, which of course are the key you know, component that we're working on in CGEM in general. When did you first learn about ribosomes and what kind of things did you learn about them and how does that relate to what you're doing today? You know, the ribosome, I believe I learned about in, in middle, like middle school roughly was sort of my first encounter with um, but that's because I was I was really into into science and sort of always went into sort of uh, in detail. But learning about the ribosome and what it does and sort of thinking about it, I feel like there's a really interesting thing in science, which is that we just revisit and re, you know, kind of destroy and rebuild constantly mm-hmm. as we progress. And I know hearing about the ribosome at first, well, you're hearing that it's RNA, and then well, you don't really know what RNA is. You know, it's some something that. Is in the in you know in the middle of the central dogma, which is of course DNA to RNA to protein. For those who don't know, and it, it's just something that you hear about, and you don't really know what it means, and you know that it makes protein, which is something you don't really know about, <laughs> but you know it happens and it does things. And then you maybe get to high school, and um, during that course, you might get a better understanding of what's happening. But then, until you really learn, I think organic chemistry, you don't really understand the power that it has because. Um, you know, you you learn that, you know, I think just sort of, sort of a basic background, because I know some of our listeners won't know this, is uh, a protein is basically what's called a polymer, and its monomers are called amino acids. And so a monomer, basically, basically multiple monomers make up a polymer. And the way that they're stitched together is, done, is actually occurring through chemistry, through a, a reaction, a chemical reaction that you don't actually learn about uh, until probably you're second semester of organic chemistry, if not your first semester of organic chemistry, which would happen in college. And those are the beads <laughs> yeah. on the string and that those you are talked the, about, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So if you think about it exactly, you make a, a necklace has beads as the monomers if you sort of want to think about it that way. And, you know, if you think about just how this applies to everyday life, I, I actually taught high schoolers this summer about a polymers and sort of biological polymers. So if you think about, you know, what a plastic is, it's a polymer that is uniform. So think about like a necklace that just has pearls all around it. And those, those are all the same pearls. And uh, a protein is really unique because each bead or each pearl will be slightly different. And so you have such a different variety, which results in such a different function. And those are all the amino acids that Correct. probably most people are familiar with because you learn about them a little bit for nutrition, right? You're yeah. supposed to get all your different amino acids and Correct. that makes a complete protein. And if you don't, then you can find yourself unhealthy. So it's important to, to have a diversity of those. That's exactly right. But in this paper, you're actually trying to put something different into these polymers. Instead of putting amino acids, what are you putting in? So, um, yeah, so uh, that's a great point. So the, the two things we really wanted to focus on was um, two building blocks, uh, which are basically what, another word for a monomer, these two new units. What we were really curious about in the center is one of them is actually sort of this monomer of Kevlar, which we refer to as an aramid. Uh, Kevlar is, you know, the, the bulletproof vests and things like that. Um, the other monomer is actually um, what we refer to it. Commonly, you'll hear um, 
I don't know if you'll hear it, but it's malonic acid, which is actually what builds a lot of the antibiotics in your body. And so the, the funny interaction, sort of intersection that I had with this is that I worked on antibiotics in my PhD. And so I worked with many different malonic acid derivatives to make many different antibiotics. And what people might not know is that, you know, a lot of the antibiotics that we take come from bacteria. In fact, some production of actual commercial antibiotics still occurs through bacteria, and it's also a polymerization reaction. You also have these malinate monomers that end up being an antibiotic polymer. And so our thought was, well, can we do that with the ribosome? Can, because then we can actually have more control over it, like we said, because there is such a sort of processivity and control over how things work. And we'll probably get to that later. W- would you ever have thought of that during your PhD, or is that something that really just came as you thought, oh, now I'm working um, on this kind of... You know, I didn't think about it at my PhD, but um, actually this is how this all started. Is So I was doing my PhD at Berkeley, and I think during my fourth year, I went to a seminar by Professor Alana Shepard at Berkeley, and who is, of course, the center's director. And um, she was talking about all the projects in her lab, and she, at the intro, had this picture up of a ribosome and said, you know, we're interested in, in using the ribosome for making antibiotics and other materials, but I won't get into that today. And uh, went on to talk about something else. And at that point, I was like, well, you know what? That's something that I would be really interested in. So I actually, that actually got me started on my application to do a postdoctoral fellowship with Alana and got me thinking about this. And when I first started, this was sort of the thing I was most interested in. Of course, you get there in convoluted ways and your work ebbs and flows. But yeah, I did not think about it until I heard it from her. And uh, then it really was something that I thought my practical knowledge could contribute. Well, that's really rewarding, though, to have it actually uh, end up being a, one of the monomers that you're putting in there, something that you worked on during your PhD and sort of thought about, at least in that context a little bit. Yeah, it, it, it's great. Um, and sort of all these little applications coming here and there. Of course, you know, what's interesting is that we're not done with this. And I think the true power of these monomers and how they sort of coincide with the ribosome is yet to be determined. And we'll see, you know, we'll see in the future, hopefully we can, we can do that. I, I will say, you know, when we think about these exotic monomers that, that I'm t- we're talking about here that are so different, that there is one thing that is really important. And, and I think that's why the sort of chemistry and being a chemist, that's where this comes into play, which is that the chemistry that we did with these, the actual chemistry, which means the fusing, you know, the, the, the bond formation which is when two atoms, you know, are starting to link together, is actually the same chemistry for the, this this reaction. It's actually the fat. So that's sort of the clever component is that we were able to find these exotic units, but they actually undergo a very similar chemistry. So you have to be really clever in the way that you create molecules that may look completely different, but if you can actually find a similarity, that's a good thing. So, so yeah. I'm not a chemist, yeah. but of course I took a lot of yeah. chemistry. And, yeah. and I would imagine that's kind of a, a common principle of chemical insight is to sort of realize, oh, there's some similarity here that I can sort of take advantage of. Yeah, definitely. And, and so, um, you know, this is going to be incredibly technical, but I will try to break it down in sort of the, the simplest way possible. And, and so when we – you've probably heard this on previous podcasts with, with us and in general maybe uh, of an, the amide bond, which is a bond that is made um, 
between to link these monomers together. And so what we were able to do in this system that of ours is that we actually were able to make amide bonds just with these monomers. And the reason is is that because one of the crucial components of this amide bond, if you think there's one and two components, actually exists in our molecule. And so all we had to do was link it with an existing amino acid and basically find a one-two solution. And so basically if you look at the chemistry, yeah, it's it's different, it's slightly different. But in the grand scheme of things, we're still making amide bonds, and that's why it's pretty cool. Great. What, what a great insight. I'm glad you guys thought to do that. So tell me a little bit about um, – obviously, this is sort of early on. It's an exciting result. But so what, what exactly – if you're going into the lab and you're doing this, what exactly do you – can you narrate a little bit like what you're doing? Obviously, a lot of it is just working with Eppendorf tubes type of stuff. But yeah. Uh, what, what, what happens and when do you get that result that you're like, oh, this is working? And, and can you just describe that a little bit? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that what's really interesting and this actually highlights sort of this collaborative environment that we have here at CGEM is that, you know, this was a collaboration between some wonderful chemists. Um, so Andrew Kearns, who's a postdoctoral fellow with Alana Shepartz, um, who's an organic chemist. Um, Aaron Featherston, who's a graduate student at in Scott Miller's lab, who's an organic chemist, um, and then Kyle Hoffman, who's a postdoctoral, who was a postdoctoral fellow, he's now moved on to different work. Um, and Dieter Soul's lab is actually a biochemist and molecular biologist, and so we all kind of came together for this this work. And um, so you know, there is there is chemistry, which is the chemistry that you imagine. You know, with you have a you have a sort of like a beaker with a, probably a color of some sort, and you're adding things to it, and you're basically making mo molecules, and that, that happens there. But we also needed a lot of sort of biological machinery for this. And so we needed, um, you know, RNA, which is sort of the ribonucleic acid, which in this case is our catalyst and also our sort of vehicle for delivering these monomers to the ribosome in what's called the transfer RNA, which transfers these single units over to the ribosome. For, for basically chemistry, or, or if we continue with our analogy for the necklace assembly, you know, all of this is is um, is done what we call in vitro, uh, which so to explain what that is just means that it's it's done in test tubes. It's it's not done with a living organism, and all the components that we have, all the translation components and everything, are pre-purified already. So we're not actually putting these in cells yet, but that allows us to have a lot of control over what we do, and that allowed us to really look at sort of you know these reactions at their fine margins and really analyze them. And and one of the things that is really key that I think goes under. So, you know, when we look at science and we look at the results, we sometimes don't realize that there was an instrument or some sort of device involved in actually getting us that result. And I think that was really crucial. Is, is So what we were using for this is in a lot of cases was a mass spectrometer or mm -hmm. a liquid chromatography um, technique and mass spectrometry. And that's a, a lot of big terms. But basically what we were able to do is we were able to basically separate these compounds that we made, these monomers, these polymers, by both like their physical properties, so basically how greasy or how not greasy they are, or by their mass, by their size, their sheer size, and analyze them very carefully. And And this is where biochemistry has really changed over the years, is it used to be, you know, this really creative, uh, there used to be a very creative way to find out what you were making, but there was no real way to validate it. And now with these mass spectrometers, which I learned to use very effectively in my graduate school, 
that's really how we, we most of this biology is being done. You know, most of these little analyses are being done with the analysis of mass, so the analysis of how much something weighs, how much it's, what's its size, and other properties like what's its color on a scale that we can't even see or things like that. So the yeah. plot you get out from a mass spec, it's like like almost like an electrocardiogram kind of thing. Like, it, like yeah. you can see these little peaks and, and valleys yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, and you can actually see um, you can actually see that in, in in the manuscript. There's a lot of different trace, what we call traces of these this data, and uh, you could see the different peptides being made down to the iso- their isotope distribution and and things like that, and uh, We've been using a, a mass spectrometer that I've been fortunate to be, have been using that kind of technique for about five years now that uh, allows us to have really, really accurate measurements. And so it, it really gives you a degree of confidence in what you're doing initially. So so did you see a mass spec reading at some point that you were like, you know what, I really think we've got it? Was there a moment uh, like that? Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's funny because it kind of just happens because, you know, you just you're just going about your day and... You prepare your samples, you go through a lot, and you run them. And um, I don't know, for me, I like, I was just running it and, you know, I entered the value and then it's like, oh, it worked. You know, you see it. <laughs> and then you're like, but wait, did it work? And then you, you go through all the necessary controls that you have yeah. because you want to validate that it wasn't just something that, that might have happened. And then, you know, it, it's very exciting and, and you build on that. And I think the most fun part is when you start to see the trends. You know, when when you have one result that's cool, it's great. But if, if you can sort of say, use your chemistry to predict, hey, this worked. So I bet you if I tweak X, Y, and Z, these should all still work. You know, you should, or, and it's a different molecule. They should behave this this way or that way. And of course, within reason, when they do, it's really exciting. Yeah, I mean, it's always yeah. hard in science to convey yeah. to other people how much of what yeah. we do is sort of repeating the same thing with a little bit different way yeah, or yeah. something like. In order to be sure that everything is right, you know, yeah. I, you know, it's easy. It's much easier to convey the glory of a single result, but uh, but in the end, it's it's doing things again and again that really convinces you if you've got something working and and is necessary in order to prove something. And now you've got this published in ACS, which is a fantastic outcome. So um, I just want to go on to uh, talk a little bit more about your experience in CGEM. You, you've mentioned that it's great because you get to have this collaborative experience. Are there any other you know, reflections on being a part of a collaborative like this as opposed to sort of uh, maybe a typical membership of a lab where you don't have quite such a broad collaborative network? Yeah, you know, I think that... Um, what comes out of the research is usually really interesting because usually when you're in a lab and you have a good result, we build up on it, but we build up on it usually in the direction it came from. Uh-huh. Whereas now I feel like with what we're doing, this gets exposed to a whole slew of different fields from computation to modeling, which, you know, so basically like thinking about what the ribosome can do to thinking what this system can do to thinking what people want to see the actual structures of these molecules. And so we have all these people from different fields that are really interested in pushing these in different directions. And and that's really where the fun is because usually, you know, if that happens, you're very happy about it, but you're not a part of it uh, because it's a field so far from you. But actually what we're really happy about is that now we're going to be involved in the process. You know, we can contribute in the way that helps, that can help as much as possible, but there's real experts that can take these in different directions and help make this a, a cooler result you know, because it, it will just keep building. 
So that's a fantastic note to end on, actually. I think I think CGEM has, uh, is accomplishing its goal if we can build a collaborative network that allows us to, to build on yeah. every discovery in a rapid way and without the barriers that sometimes uh, block uh, progress. Thanks so much for sharing uh, this time with me, Omer. It was really great to hear about this result and talk about this fantastic paper that just came out. Thank you. It's my pleasure.